Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. There's a presidential election in El Salvador on Sunday. Leading the polls is the capital's former mayor, a young candidate with serious social media savvy. He might just be the country's first millennial president, but his policy plans aren't so clear. And there's quite a big diamond up for auction in Angola today. It's not the country's biggest ever, but it is a massive sign of change. First up, In the midst of a trade war between the world's two largest economies, peace talks. Representatives from the U.S. and China are meeting in Washington this week after a year of escalating tensions. America has imposed tariffs on $250 billion worth of Chinese goods, alongside rhetoric about trade surpluses and intellectual property theft. It is the largest deficit of any country in the history of our world. It's out of control. The Chinese government has responded with tariffs of its own. The American side of this week's talks is led by Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. trade representative. He'll be sitting down with Liu He, China's vice premier, who is also expected to meet with Mr. Trump today. The clock is ticking. If no agreement is reached by March 1st, the Trump administration has promised to ratchet up most of those new tariffs from 10% to 25%. The discussions have been complicated by charges brought this week by American officials over alleged misdeeds at Huawei, a Chinese telecoms giant. But both sides want a deal. Apple shares down big after the company slashed guidance on weaker sales out of China. Its revenue outlook for the first time in two decades, citing weaker demand in China amid the ongoing trade war with the United States. China is a key market for the likes of Apple, Nike, Boeing, Starbucks. They'll all be hoping for a positive outcome from the talks. But so will ordinary people in China, where a slowing economy is starting to affect jobs. Traditionally, the province of Henan and Zhengzhou, its capital, were quite poor. They were places that people left to, to find work elsewhere. Simon Rabinovich is our Asia economics editor. He's been visiting Zhengzhou, the capital of China's Henan province, and home to 10 million people. In recent years, it's been making a really big effort to woo companies and to get people to come back to the city. And one of the big focuses has been on the technology sector. So they provided all kinds of uh, subsidies and inducements for Foxconn, which is uh, the world's biggest company by employment. It's, it's a Taiwanese company, which is Apple's biggest manufacturer, to come and set up a huge factory complex, which is now known as iPhone City. It's a complex that, at its peak, employed as many as 350,000 people. So it's an interesting bellwether for how the economy is faring, and especially how the technology sector is faring as these economic pressures build. And Simon, what did you find on your visit to iPhone City? So I spent a few hours outside the Foxconn complex. So a couple of streets that uh, I went up that were just outside the factory area, 
were looking more and more desolate. Uh, one entire area that had had workers' dormitories had been shut down, surrounded by barbed wire. So, you know, far from being a, a bright, shining spot for Zhengzhou's development, it was, it was looking more like a, a growing black hole. 能不能给我具体的例子,比方说原来最好的一个月可以赚多少? One of the workers that I spoke to said that he'd been at the factory for six years, which made him a real veteran of the assembly line work. And he would have happily continued doing so, but um, he was being pushed down to uh, just eight hours a day, five days a week, which might sound like a normal work week to many of our listeners, but for somebody who's working at a Foxconn factory, that's really a pittance. It's about 20 hours less than what he would like to be meeting to be able to achieve his uh, salary target. Um, so he was thinking about walking away from the job and said that a lot of his colleagues had already done so. What I'm curious about is how much of this reflects kind of internal pressures and concerns and how much of it has to do with, with external factors. The, the trade war with America, how, how much does that figure into this dynamic that you're seeing? It, it's definitely a big factor in this. You know, there, there's a Chinese expression that describes, uh, you know, negative times for the economy as being like winter. Uh, and they say that the downturn domestically has been a layering of snow for the economy and the trade war has been frost on top of the snow. And I think that's actually a, a good metaphorical way of, of looking at it. Um, so clearly the trade war has added to the downside pressure, but it's not just about the trade war. One of the labor markets, a human resources center outside of the Foxconn factory, um, I spoke with uh, Cao Yingying, who is a, you know, a woman at the front desk who helps to recruit workers and then dispatches them to companies and factories around the country. And she said that the Foxconn slowdown is something they've been dealing with for several months, but it really was broader than just Foxconn. A whole gamut of electronics companies were facing much slower sales. She talked about, you know, slowdown for uh, manufacturers of washing machines, of fridges, of vacuum cleaners. And her point was that it's not just the trade war, it really is a domestic slowdown. Right, so there will be hopes of this frost on top of the snow melting. To that end, how important is this week in terms of resolving the trade war? It's absolutely pivotal. We're we're down to the wire. Uh, It's the end of January. The deadline is is the beginning of March, so one month away. And it's a shortened month because China is going to have its New Year's holiday for a week in February, uh, and the country really runs at half speed around that time. So, uh, you know, this is a, a point in the negotiations where, where the rubber really has to begin to hit the road. Liu He, who's the vice premier, is going to be in Washington talking face-to-face with Steve Mnuchin, the treasury secretary, and with Robert Lighthizer, the United States trade representative. You know, I don't expect that there's going to be any kind of deal that will come out of these two days of talks. Uh, but if there is to be something come March 1st, then a lot of details are going to have to be hammered out in these two days in Washington. Certainly in America, this is uh, an issue for the the, the man or woman on the street because there's been so much grandstanding by the Trump administration. Is that the case also in China? 
It, it's very different. I mean, number one, there's been much less grandstanding from from the Xi administration. It's not in his interest to talk about you know China being put on the back foot. Uh, but then number two, the media environment is is so fundamentally different. I mean, there's there's no podcast programs like the Intelligence that are you know trying to dig into the ins and outs of the trade war. Uh, you don't have have uh, newspapers or blogs or or anything like Twitter um, talking about it on a daily basis. So you don't have the same kind of focus, attention, or debate. So from the, the man or woman on the street, there's not much discussion of it. But for the man or woman in the C-suite, there's definitely uh, a lot of focus, a lot of concern, uh, and even a lot of disgruntlement of feeling that um, China in recent years has been uh, a little bit too arrogant, a little bit too uh, brash in advertising its accomplishments, and had China's leaders, had its government been more modest and more restrained, maybe it wouldn't have provoked this kind of backlash from America. Um, so, uh, you know, Xi Jinping is under some pressure uh, to bring this all to a resolution, both to help the economy and, and to avoid this kind of criticism. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Central American country of El Salvador is getting a shake-up ahead of presidential elections. In a country where the power of ruthless criminal gangs once pushed the murder rate to the highest in the world, and where the two main political parties are remnants of old civil war adversaries, one candidate stands out. Nayib Bukele served as the mayor of the capital, San Salvador, and in December announced his run for president via Facebook Live. He has more than a million followers on Facebook, in a country of fewer than 7 million people. Well, Nayib Bukele, if he wins uh, this election, he's going to be the first ever millennial president of Latin America at the age of 37. Richard Enzer has been reporting in El Salvador for The Economist. He's also going to represent a big change for El Salvador, which since its civil war has been governed by the two traditional parties and never anybody else. Nayib Bukele is running with a completely different party, and that would be a, a major realignment in the political system of El Salvador. He presents himself as a populist who is going to change the country from the ground up. He is... You know, he's young with a, with a man bun and a beard. He's not like the other politicians. He blasts out hip-hop at his rallies. But when you look at his policies, it's not clear that he would bring as much change as he actually promises that he will. So what's different about his style of campaigning? He's constantly on Twitter, and he's been called a kind of social media president for running the majority of his campaign in the digital realm, rather than going and speaking to voters and putting himself in uncontrolled environments. For example, instead of attending the presidential debates uh, a couple of weekends ago, he, he abandoned that, even though he said that he would, and instead decided to launch his big plan on Facebook Live, except so afraid was he of uncontrolled environments that he then pre-recorded 
the Facebook Live and then just broadcast that anyway. Now, Richard, you've you've been reporting in El Salvador um, about uh, about his rise. What do people there make of him? Everyone you speak to in El Salvador will tell you that they are very fed up with the way things are going and what uh, the the failures of the two parties in in the recent decades to make progress on the issues that they care about. And what they've seen is uh, massive corruption becoming more and more visible. And as an example of that, three of the previous four presidents have been uh, accused of, of, of very corrupt acts. And therefore, a president who who comes along and distinguishes himself by saying, I'm not from the tribes, I'm, I'm completely different and we're going to fix corruption. It's a very seductive message, not just in El Salvador, but all around Latin America. So aside from his uh, proficiency with social media, what, what do we actually know about Mr. Bukele? While he was mayor of San Salvador, he managed to get through a couple of infrastructure projects that look very nice. They're re- revitalizing and regenerating a few squares and plazas in the city center. And that is, frankly, more than most uh, mayors of San Salvador accomplished. So he, he came out of that uh, post with his reputation enhanced, even if he did rack up you know, quite a lot of debt in the process of doing so. How big a shakeup for El Salvador would it be if he were to win? Well, that's the question. And, and there, there's a couple of ironies here because these two political parties, which are kind of the, the heirs of the two sides during the Civil War, they hate each other. There's massive polarization. Uh, and, and their policies are not that different. So you've got this huge space to be exploited. And then when Nayib Bukele comes along and says, I'm representing this fantastic, tremendous change, it's really not clear that he will. His opponents tell me that for them, he represents the worst of the same, uh, that he's going to do business in El Salvador the exact way people have always done it. And so what about the the, the problems that he faces, or indeed anyone who wins the presidency will, will face? What? Uh, what are the main challenges in El Salvador right now? So one of the things that hasn't been discussed to the level that it usually is in this election campaign has been security. And that's because the murder rate has gone from being the highest rate in the world in 2015 to fall, falling by about half um, in, in, in the in ensuing three years. And obviously it's going to be extremely important to maintain that progress, to improve upon it, and to try and bring down uh, rates of other crimes like extortion. But nevertheless, uh, in, in its place, one of the big things is, is corruption and, and the fact that so many previous presidents have ended up as extremely corrupt and that so many have, uh, even those who come in promising to change the system, end up just as corrupt as the rest. So uh, a, a plan to do that will be, will be very necessary. It, so strengthening the rule of law and, and building on the institutions that already exist in El Salvador, which tend to be regarded as a little bit stronger than some of its neighbours, like Honduras and Guatemala, which seems to be going in the other way in terms of rule of law a lot of the time, uh, will be very important for the next president. It, it sounds as if whoever wins this election, the, that they're kind of in, inheriting a, a better situation than, than past presidents have inherited. They have a kind of a, a base to build upon. What would you recommend, you know, if you could hand some prescriptions to the new president, who, whomever that turns out to be? Well, uh, one, of the, one of the big things is, is of course, building on the success of the reduced homicide rate. Uh, one of the big things, of course, is that the dominance of the gangs like Mara Salvatrucha and Barrio 18, these two uh, the gangs that rule just about every corner of San Salvador, uh, programs to prevent kids from joining the gangs and to keep 
inmates from joining them once they get out are very important. And that's a growing realization in El Salvador that you need the prevention, rehabilitation and reinsertion programs to accompany a kind of hard hand from, from the law enforcement authorities. A second one, of course, would be to attract investment. El Salvador has always punched below its rate when it comes to attracting foreign direct investment, which obviously provides jobs. For example, Nicaragua, you know, just about dictatorship with a, an ex-leftist in power, very poor country, receives more foreign direct investment. And that's something the next president should really be focusing on. Richard, thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. There are a lot of numbers floating around The Economist. They help make sense of a lot of stories, and sometimes they're just interesting in their own right. So I've been hassling people to come and tell us about interesting numbers that come up in the course of reporting. Today, we've got Jonathan Rosenthal, our Africa editor. Jonathan, hello. What what number have you got? So I've got a number that is 114, 114. And that may not sound like a really big number, but when you put carrots on the end of it, it becomes one huge diamond. 114-carat diamond. Uh, where, where is it? What is it? So firstly, you know, it is not the biggest diamond in the world by any long shot. But what's really important about this is that it is going on auction today in Angola. And that's a first because it is marking a real step towards transparency in this country. Well, what happened with, with diamonds before? Why is this the first auction? So Angola is a, an incredibly mineral-rich country. It's got oil and it's got diamonds. And for pretty much 38 years since its independence, people fought over or controlled both of those major resources. So you had a civil war for control of it. And after the end of the civil war, you had a ruling party that essentially just controlled everything and was absolutely untransparent about it. So diamonds were being sold through back channels with no one really knowing where the money was going. And, and what's changed since? So what has changed is you've, you've had this incredible change of power. Uh, Eduardo de Santos, the former president, finally was forced to step down, handed over to this hand-picked successor, this protege, who he thought would protect his interests and his family's interests. And yet what the new president has done is he's started really just trying to clean things up. He's sacked people suspected of corruption. He is bringing in transparency, including bringing diamond sales out into the open. So this protege, this, this new leader. Yeah, uh, Jean Lorenzo. Right. Jean Lorenzo has made a good start. What's the way out to get it sort of everything on the level and, and stable? So, so, so the real thing is just to get some transparency you know, right into public finances, into the government finances. Kind of where is the oil money going? Never mind where has it gone for 20 years. And that really means a, a sort of proper audit of the public finances. International lenders, the IMF and those sorts of organizations have been calling for that for a long time. The ruling party resisted that. Uh, but it now seems as if Mr. Lorenzo is, is, is moving in the right direction. To be as transparent, dare I say it, as a diamond. <laughs> Indeed. Jonathan, thank you very much. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. 
The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.